talking about it, there's an ultimate thread on ICC practice of diversity and Wendy Miles to send along email with statistics from 2016 and all the other institutions. So They sent the statistics now? It's a timely issue. In 2016, 20% of LCA appointments were women, primarily attributable to LCIA nominating them, mm. as opposed to the parties. Yeah. It was, I, I went to the Rochier um, arbitration conference. Yeah. yeah. Uh, arbitration f- f- forum. Forum. And uh, they brought, and one of their thing, one of their topics was diversity and arbitration. And it was weird that it, it took this like weird slant where instead of saying that like the institution or parties should be more cognizant of it, it turned into can women make better decisions than men? Like, what? like one of the panelists uh, was a client or a, you know, a, a gas company in Italy and they could, they used arbitration a lot. Yeah. And they said, um, and she says, you know, I find women more diligent and able to put in more hours and I feel like they make more reasoned opinions. And I think everyone on the panel was like, I don't think that was the question. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that might be right, but it's not really the way to approach this. No. Uh, 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 yeah. It's, it's not women are better than men. No, that's not the the case we have to make. <laughs> it's that we have to get over biases in the way that we include women in the yeah, conversation. Yeah, exactly, and stop like structurally, <clears throat> systemically favor the same kind of arbitrator all the time because that's the way arbitrators have always been. Right. So we will talk to Annette Magnusson, who is the Secretary General of the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce, about that later on in the episode. Yeah. Do you realize that we are? the least diverse group that there is as well. Two white Western men talking about this field. It's a bit ironic. Shoot. (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) Um, But before we do that very interesting interview and bring some clout to this program, we will have two other subjects. The first one will be third-party funding, which is a new concept that has come up in international arbitration. it's probably been going on longer than we know, but it's just been behind the scenes, and now it's coming to the forefront with a lot of legal issues that have come up. Um, so we will talk about that, and then we will talk about your topic. Yeah, born arbitration. B-O-U-R-N. Exactly, as in Jason Bourne. Uh, and it's something that I know almost nothing about, but I'm interested in all these like uh, CAA spy-like things that are flying around in the, the outskirts of arbitration, so forensic linguistics and uh, all these ex-military people doing investigations in, as part of arbitrations. Sounds interesting. So we have three topics, and uh, we will get started with the first topic, which I will be fielding, which is the third-party funding issue. Um, and so the definition of a third-party funder is an investor that has no connection to the case but finances the claimant's claim against a compensation connected to the outcome of a case. And the way that these, this compensation will come back to this third-party funder or investor is either a percentage, which has come up to about 30 to 50% on average of the damages recovered, or a multiple of around three to four of the funding to be provided. So it would be 300% of the amount funded would be the return. The reason why this has come up, and there's been this positive-negative discussion about how uh, third-party funding will affect arbitration is on the one side, you have the positive, is the access to justice of an investor who wouldn't necessarily have been able to bring the claim now has the money to do so. 
And actually, the Paris Bar Council passed a resolution in the beginning of May of this year that the third-party funding is a positive development for access to justice in international arbitration and does not contravene French law. So this was introduced in the Paris Arbitration Week, and it was kind of this stamp of approval from our friends in France uh, about... Like we said in the inaugural, the past episode, you can always count on France to be the most pro-arbitration or arbitration-embracing jurisdiction. Exactly. The second consideration is a leveling of the playing field, so you don't have this intimidation tactic of dragging out the process for financial reasons. Um, and then the third one is the increase, or so the opposite, the counterbalance of this is the increase in the amount of frivolous claims. So you have a claim that looks good on the whole, but it really has no merit to it. The third party funding finds it um, and, and backs it, and then you have a lot of claims that are coming up against states. Wouldn't a, a third-party funder say, though, that they will never fund such a case because it wouldn't make business sense? So Correct. the market, i.e. the smart quantifiers at the third-party funders would root out those cases. Yeah, uh, that, that's what they say. So I, maybe there is no merit in the fact that, it, that they would bring more frivolous claims. But, I mean, let's look at who these investors are, right? So there's some companies... Uh, I guess we can name them. There's a, a couple examples are Eureka Investments and Burford are some of the ones that I've I've seen come up. And so here are some of like the requirements of what these investors will do to get into a case like this. They want to have a minimum size that we talked about earlier, usually about a minimum of 10 million euros. And then they do a due diligence of the one, the merits of the case. Um, two, the likelihood that the respondent will be able to pay damages if awarded. And three, the possibility of successfully enforcing any award in the claimant's favor. Um, and so they have a large legal team that looks into these cases and really, you know, does this due diligence practice to kind of make that um, the likelihood. Um, and they make money by calculating these outcomes. So I'm sure they even have some gambling statisticians there as well, isn't just not um, legal lawyers. And the reasons that they would invest is not necessarily monetary, which maybe could be something about not necessarily frivolous claims, but claims that maybe shouldn't be raised in arbitration. So an example of that would be Philip Morris versus Uruguay, where the um, campaign for, for ta- tobacco-free kids actually put in money. Uh, and Michael Bloomberg, yeah. I think, right? Or the yeah. Bloomberg Company or some entity connected to... To Bloomberg. Yeah. And so, so they had some sort of social change as the reason why they would want to invest. Um into that's right okay so they are also of course technically third-party funders yes i i tend to think of third-party funders as these like london paris new york based ex-arbitration lawyers that fly around selling their services to law firms right exactly that's true so what about um in sweden centrum for retvisa no they're like uh, institute for justice in the state so it's like public interest litigation okay they basically take on cases court cases pro bono okay for political reasons to drive political change but who funds courts. that organization people okay rich rich people who don't generally like the state so that's maybe you could find that's right that's a good an analogy arbitration. yeah but they are not then as opposed to what you were just saying based on some sort of contingency is more like a donation so they they donate so that the lawyers at the institute right. have a steady salary right and then they don't get x percent of the damages awarded in the end because that would sort of contravene the public interest thing if 
of the money awarded to the poor people who got their house expropriated went into the pockets of a rich Stockholm-based right. philanthropist who wouldn't really be as attractive, I think. I mean, the, pro- the problem is we have this huge arbitration process that could take years and really bog up the uh, civil servants of a specific state. So it could be a, a tactical reason, I mean, to to increase the caseload of a state in order to have the sources stretched between all of these cases so that your case didn't get the defense that it would have gotten otherwise. There's some... There's some legal considerations that we need to look at, and some of the legal issues that have come up are, um, for example, security of costs, which is something that has come up recently. Of I mean, the RSM v. Uh, El Salvador case, Saint Lucia. Actually, it's not El Salvador. And uh, okay, another legal issue that has come up is a responsibility to inform uh, whether if you uh, receive third party funding, if you have to inform the tribunal or the counterparty that you have such funding. Um, another issue that came up is arbitrator challenge. So if, it, if there's any um, conflicts of interest between the arbitrator and the third party funder. Um, allocation of costs, which I just said, if you're you know working with a cost follow, follow an events um, jurisdiction or, or set of laws, that that would, might be something that come up. And then you also have confidentiality, um, of course, that comes up. So let's go into this duty of disclosure because I think it comes, it's kind of the new wave of why we're talking about this issue. Um, and just before I even get into some of these things, do you think that there should be a duty to disclose a third party funder? The instinctive response is always, it depends, but yeah, generally speaking to make it easy, Yes. Right. As for a vote of transparency in the whole process. Yes, exactly. And for all of the uh, the reasons you just mentioned, they, they all almost sort of presuppose that all the involved parties are aware that there is funding. Otherwise, the conflict of interest discussion when it comes to the relationship between an arbitrator and the funder wouldn't even come up, presumably. Right. 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 Um, so in the, there, it has the trend has been to include a provision that. Um, the third-party funder or the disputed party benefiting from the third-party funding should notify. So in TTIP, actually, they have a provision for that. Um, the CAC investment arbitration rule says that the tribunal shall be able to instruct party to disclose, so it's in the power of the tribunal. And then the IBA guidelines actually have um, a provision in the general standards 6 and 7A. So uh, 7A actually says that a party shall inform an arbitrator of any relationship with a direct economic interest in the award to be rendered. So it kind of takes a more broad, not just third-party funding, but anybody with a direct economic interest in the award um, could come up. And then there has been an order of disclosure in many cases. Um, so it is basically, I would say, the trend that you should notify. But those orders have maybe you don't know, but those orders then have been given by the tribunal as part of the tribunal's sort of general mandate to conduct the arbitration in an efficient and speedy manner and so on. Exactly. So it's basically the tribunal in a procedural order saying Instructing that, yeah. to, yeah, to disclose. Yeah, but that would only come up if the tribunal gets some sort of indication that there is funding, or do you think you would do that sort of... Yeah, I don't know how it would come up. Like if we, we don't know anything about this, but if in any case either of the party is being funded, please disclose. 
It could be something that should come in every procedure order number one. Yeah, exactly. Like, it should be in the models yeah. of every PO1. Especially since you're saying it dealing with an expropriation issue where the standard is that you've lost all value in your investment and considering that most investment arbitrations are started by a holding company for the purpose of this investment, yeah. you're dealing with always an insolvent exactly. or close to insolvent The investment has gone awry and there's nothing right. left to be done, so... Maybe they don't always have the funds. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I wonder what if there's a argument that a claimant makes that says, for example, the state is continuing to take or continuing to affect the investment. And then the claimant makes the position that this will lead them to insolvency. Could it be an argument of the state to say that the claimant should seek third-party funding if they want to continue until there's a judgment on whether the actions the state took were wrong or liable, make yeah, them liable. I mean, it's one argument, but I don't think it's a, it's a very good it's, one. I don't, I, yeah, I don't think so either. It, uh, it should be number four on the list of arguments probably then because you can't really expect a claimant to be able to you know, go out in an insecure market. Yeah. Also, given what you said initially about the how restrictive the funders are when they determine which case to fund and which to not fund. Yeah. So there's got to be a lot of bad cases out there, who at one where, where people at one point were looking for funding but didn't get it. So, no case actually. There's got to be a lot of research on this now that I talk about it, like law and economics research about the efficiency and if if cases are approved or improved rather, if cases are improved by the fact that you have a fully transparent third-party funding in the scenario where, hypothetical scenario in which it would be completely transparent if it would be a better scenario in the sense that we would only have cases that are legitimate and have been vetted. Does it make sense? Like some University of Chicago person, yeah, an, an, an economist would be interested in calculating what, what effects on the level of cases or the quality of cases that unlimited third-party funding... How would it would increase the quality of the case? Just Yeah, the cases, like uh, if you look at several cases, would, would it... Essentially, would it improve access to justice? So right. Would more good cases be brought? Instead of just, would more cases absolute yeah, exactly. value? Exactly. So how, how, how big is the number of cases out there that cannot be brought as of now be, or previously because they have not been able to secure funding. Right. If that number is high enough, I think it's easy to justify the existence and, of course, then also the framework to support third-party funding. Yeah. I mean, most institutions have used finances as kind of the, the filter through which they get their cases, right? Or if you think about the emergency arbitration standards in many institutions, money is the big discouraging factor in that, right? It costs more to bring an emergency arbitration than something else because you're going to use the resources of the institution. And But it all boils down to money. So if you, I mean, I think in that situation, especially you would have not even more or better access to justice in that case because someone who really needs the emergency arbitration but would maybe say, well, I don't want to pay that money. Um, it's not that 
you know, they, they do that like calculation in their head. I don't think it's that urgent or necessary for us to get it now. Let's just wait. And maybe their access to justice would be more preserved if they didn't have to worry about the money factor. And then just use the tactical, you know, guerrilla tactics like a state would usually employ because yeah. they don't have to think about budget as much. Yeah, yeah exactly. So the only consideration is, is this a good case? Right. What are, what, what are the chances that we will win? Right. Which is, of course, one of the considerations normally, but you also have to, as you say, think about, is it worth, like, if we have a 60% chance of winning, although lawyers hate to give that kind of estimates, but, yeah. and it's going to cost probably between X and Y million dollars, is that worth the, the 60% chance of reward? Right. I think it might be interesting to look at cases that have been concluded and maybe talk to counsel and say, would your case have gone differently, do you think, if you weren't under some sort of budgetary restriction? Yeah. Yeah. Because that would be kind of a way to have a yes or no instead of, well, did you have access? Well, would your case have been improved if you had more money? Would be an interesting question. Yeah, but the, the answer would always be, be yes. yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I have one case that um, I wanted to raise to you. Um, it was an ICC case um, with the seat in London. And it's called the SRV Norscott case. Have you heard of this? I just did my research. So I hadn't heard about it either. Um, so there was uh, Norscott brought the arbitration claim against ESSER for a breach of an operation management agreement. It was under the ICC rules, as I said, seated in England. And Norscott, the one bringing the claim, uh, obtained third-party funding from a funder, Woodsford, who advanced... Um, Norscott the sum of £647,000 to finance the arbitration. And that agreement there was that the fee would be 300% of the funding or 35% of the recovery, whichever was higher. Um, the arbitration, the arbitrator was highly critical of Esser's behavior before and during the arbitration, finding that he had set out to cripple Norscott financially and that Norscott, quote, had no alternative but was forced to enter into the third-party funding if it was to, quote, secure justice. Um, and then the arbitrator accepted, so they brought in expert evidence uh, to talk about the rates of the third-party funder and whether this was something that needed to happen in order to seek this access to justice. Um, and it was a sole arbitrator, and he awarded Norscott damages and costs, including, and here's where it gets interesting, uh, indemnity costs because of Esser's behavior, so that by the time the case came to court, Esser was liable to Norscott for around 12 million U.S. dollars. Um, so he awarded, because of this unreasonable conduct by the counterparty, he awarded Norscott the cost of obtaining third-party funding. Hmm. So because he had no alternative but to resort to third-party funding, the arbitrator awarded Norscott 1.94 million pounds that had to do with the funding costs from Woodsford as and he categorized it under other costs, quote-unquote, from under the English Arbitration Act and the ICC rules that allow you to award costs of an arbitration. Um, <clears throat> so that went to the commercial court uh, because they tried to set aside the award on this serious irregularity which arose, um, basically going on this whether third-party funding can fit under these other costs. And the commercial court found that there was no serious irregularity under the uh, English Arbitration Act, that the arbitrator can use their discretion to award what costs they see um, appropriate. Um, and that they also reason that a successful party may be out of pocket after refunding the third party funder. 
because like you said, you have to pay your lawyers on the side. You may, the award may not have been that much. You have to pay 300% of the original investment. So you could be out of pocket. So if you're trying to bring the investor whole um, or the claimant whole, then maybe this is something that an arbitrator uh, would want to do. So there is an argument that third-party funding costs should be claimed as costs at the end of the arbitration, um, but it, it could maybe be included as damages or it could be included as costs. Um, well, they, they are costs that you have incurred as a party yeah. in order to bring the case. And then how do you, right, and how do you define these costs? Because costs up until now has been the necessary costs to bring a claim. So then you kind of have to say whether this is a necessary cost to bring your claim. Yeah, and it sounds like, at least according to the sole arbitrator, in this case, it, it was. was. Yeah. And the uh, third-party funding industry is cheering in champagne. And... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, yeah, and it maybe, I don't know. But then, then we're getting, going back to what we're saying is, you know, is improving your case different than bringing your case? Um what kind of conduct would drive someone to seek third-party funding? Um, if a state is taking a lot of like parallel attacks against the claimant that are you know unreasonable, and maybe that's a reason that they should um, take some action or award the cost of the third-party funder. But I don't know what would... So basically you have two issues. What is unreasonable conduct that would, quote, force someone to get third-party funding? And secondly, then you have the legal issue of whether this can yeah. be something that can And be... the first one, the bar has to be pretty high. Yeah. To say that you've been forced, quote-unquote, into obtaining external funding to defend your case. Yeah. Then the other party clearly must have been engaging in some sort of bad faith behavior. Otherwise, it's you're not forced... You just, you, you, you prefer to be funded externally because it makes your case stronger and it makes your own risk benefit calculus work better. Right. It's different from being forced into a corner. My gut reaction is that this should not be, until it's more regulated what the third party funder is liable themselves of, which I think they should be liable, but that's just me, unless you're willing to fund this podcast, and then I don't think you're liable for anything. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, it's... My reaction is that this is not something that should be awarded in costs. Be and, but see, th this is why they got into this whole expert evidence of whether it was reasonable fees or not, because then you're going into exactly what they look at for lawyers' fees, right? They assess the reasonableness of it. So then you would have to have that basically in every arbitration. You're going to have your legal experts, your financial experts, and then your third-party funder expert to basically say that these are reasonable. I don't think you needed expert evidence to determine that, considering that the market rate is the 30 for 50%. Yeah, that's true. Okay, then I think I've been groomed by a lifetime of just taking the opposite position, but <laughs> just to be the devil's advocate here, and shouldn't we just trust the arbitrator to be able to use his or her discretion because that's what basically we're doing under most institutional rules anyway when it comes to, to other parts of, of alleged costs. That if you if you claim that you've had costs X, Y, and Z, you also have to show why yeah. and why it was necessary. And then that doesn't mean necessarily that you will recover everything because the arbitrator ultimately will, or the tribunal will, will determine to what extent the tribunal feels those costs are reasonable. And you can just add third-party funding to that. It, the very fact that in this case it was justified doesn't mean that it will happen every time. No. 
You're right. And I, I think, just, I absolutely agree with you that we should leave that to the tribunal's discretion, but I also am of the general opinion, and this is something personally that I think is that, and maybe it's my American side of me, but that it would be nice to give the tribunal that mandate expressly, um, to put it in some sort of explanation to the rules or a best practices to say, this is included in the type of thing that you can award and costs based on that you know, the tribunal's discretion. But I think it is it it risks building a patchwork of decisions or how they frame the issue, which is the exact problem with security on costs. I mean, there's no there's some institutional rules that don't have that provision, and then you see just the wild west on how it comes out, where they find their power. Is it a provisional measure? You know, and then you need to figure out how you're going to reconcile that. Yeah. So you either front load the work or back load the work, but you can't ignore that this is happening. I had a you probably know this because you know the person. I had a very good master's student write his master thesis with me as supervisor on whether or not third-party funding was legal in Sweden. Mm -hmm. Because you also have the sort of more fundamental question that we haven't addressed, if it's even legal, which it seems to be in most jurisdictions, or ethical for for lawyers, for example, or if, if the fee structures, the fees arrangement for the funders are allowed... Right. I don't think that's a given. And I, of course, cannot remember the, his conclusion <laughs> with respect to Sweden, which is my own jurisdiction, which was probably that it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I know that under the Swedish Bar Association rules, you know, they're pretty restricted when it comes to alternative fee arrangements. Right. But it seems in most big arbitration jurisdictions, that's a non-starter, right? That you don't even discuss that fact because that's where you have the big industry of third-party funders in London and in New York and Singapore. Yeah, yeah. but I think that that may be something that the third-party funder looks into um, what, where the seat of the arbitration is to see if that would even be set aside because of the third-party funding regime or whether it would be illegal, right? Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's put this in a little box and open that box when we talk about place of arbitration and why and how much it matters because that's something we had to address at one point. The cliffhangers you bring in. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> should, should have been a movie writer. All right, let's move on. We will talk about, in this section of the podcast, the launch of the, it's called Equal Representation and Arbitration Pledge that came out on May 18th, 2016. Um, the pledge is a call to the international dispute resolution community to commit to increase the number of female arbitrators on an equal opportunity basis. And as someone who will speak not on behalf of the pledge, but as an interesting figure related to the pledge, we have Annette Magnusson, who is the Secretary General of the Arbitration Institute of the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Hello. To this informal discussion. Thank you. Um, so, what, are, what is your role in this pledge? Are you a part of this organization, or is it an organization? So, I think one should characterize the pledge as a network. Um, so, we were one of the first, I think we were one of the first arbitral institutions that signed the pledge. Uh, and I'm also part of the steering group of the pledge. Um, and in that capacity, I, I think one could characterize my role as being an ambassador for the pledge and the message that it tries to convey. And it's a large steering group, so we are spread out over the, over the world, and 
really that's what we do. We try to have more signatories, we try to organize um, events where we talk about the underlying values of the pledge and why it's important. Um, I saw on the website that you can pledge as an individual and also on behalf of your firm, for example. Exactly. So are there institutions, is every institution on this pledge? Good question. <laughs> I haven't checked if haven't every checked. institution... Okay. Uh, but there are a bunch of them, I saw, when I looked at the webpage at least. So. I think you will find sort of the, the vast majority of the major institutions on the, so having signed the pledge. Right. Signing up is one thing, but what, what does it entail then once you signed up, apart from the ambassadorship that you mentioned and uh, talking on podcasts about it? But so what we found as we sort of reviewed the language of the pledge is really not doing something in that in that respect when it comes to appointment of the arbitrators. It's not really doing something very different from what we were already doing, I would say, at the SEC, in terms of being aware of the fact that we need to work actively to balance out the gender gap when it comes to arbitrator appointments. Um, to be aware that when we, uh, in our internal processes, propose names for appointments, that we think actively of actually having not only women, but new names in general, but actually in that, in that process, uh, think of to have a, a balanced um, proposal when it comes to gender. So it's not necessarily a quota that every recommendation has to have one woman included or anything? Like no, there is no formal requirements. Uh, uh, so it's really, it's... So having the issue on the table, I would say, that's, that's the main point. And actually, when we sit now at the board meetings at the SSC, you will hear comments around the table if we have a list of arbitrators. Usually we have three names for every um, slot there is to fill for an appointment, just for reasons of efficiency, so we don't have to sort of go back to the board for every person right. that has a conflict and so forth. So we will have three names. And if there's only men on this list, you will hear comments like, should we not have a, a female arbitrator considering the pledge now that we have the pledge? So, and that, you did not hear that a year ago. So I think that in itself has raised the awareness. Although, like I said, it's not like we're doing something differently now, but the awareness is, is bigger among the entire board. And I think that's, a, that's probably the biggest change. Right. That's interesting. So if a, so if a law firm takes this pledge, what are... What would their role be in appointing arbitrators? Or do you think that this pledge is wider than that? Well, if we look down the road, I think, yes, the pledge is wider in terms of um, making equal opportunities for men and women in law. One could sort of, right. that's not the language of the pledge. The pledge is looking specifically at arbitrator appointments. And I think as a law firm, it's the same thing. When you are asked, by your client to make an appointment. You could have a proposal or a list to the client which consists of men and women. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of understood if you sign the pledge. And again, it's not a decided ratio or quota, but you should actively think of having a balanced list. I was reading something actually, and they said that one way you could take an act in the pledge would be when you propose potential arbitrators for your party appointed arbitrator to your client to not include gender specifications in the names because sometimes names could be gender neutral if you don't know the nationality. So that could be one way of kind of taking, doing your part in um, getting more people appointed. Still, it, it seems a, a common refrain that I hear a lot is that it's that parties are worse, quote-unquote, than, than institutions in the sense that they tend to appoint a less diverse type of arbitrators than, than what institutions do. Is that your 
experience as well that the institutions are more progressive in this respect than what the parties are when they appoint their own arbitrators? Well, first, if you look at the numbers, that would certainly support that conclusion in terms of the, the, the percentage of women being appointed is generally speaking higher if you look at only the institutional appointments as compared to the party appointments. Having said that though, uh, who is doing the appointment? Is it the client or is it the council? Um, and who, who are the names? Because usually most clients, they, they don't appear as parties in arbitrations all the time. They don't appoint arbitrators on a regular basis. They rely on the expertise of their council to make that um, right. proposal for them. And, and for have a discussion and have a list or whatever, whatever process is being used in that particular case. But I think the council has a very large um, role to play and, and, and they are able to have a strong voice here. And they should have a strong voice because that's their expertise, right? That's why, that's why they are hired by, by the clients. Um, so they should not be afraid to propose new names if they know these are good people that will be suitable for the case, regardless of men and women, of course. Yeah. When I first read the pledge, I heard it as kind of an, a fight against unconscious bias in the workplace, regardless of where it is. And so I think, and this is just my personal reaction, and you can feel free to agree or not, and we discussed a little bit of this before, is that um, the retention of female talent in the arbitration world and in the legal field specifically is something that we need to be not only concerned about, but take a, a step forward and an action at doing. Because I think at the firm level, and you also worked in the firm context before, um, that it is still kind of a white old man's game in many countries. I mean, I know Sweden is a bit more progressive, but uh, it still exists. You're absolutely right, and I think uh, there needs active action, so to speak. I think in Sweden, the women have been in the majority of a law school graduates for the past 20-some years. I mean, it's a long time. So the argument that's in the pipeline doesn't hold. Right. It will not fix itself, uh, because there are patterns and there are, um, there are unseen sort of um, processes in motion here that needs to be addressed that explains why we have this still uh, unbalanced situation at senior level um, right. in law firms, for example. I mean, we did a project here at the SSC um, last winter, uh, which called Level the Playing Field, where we actually worked with 10 law firms uh, in, in Stockholm. Uh, very interesting project where the law firms actually came together here um, and worked together to identify um, what are the barriers? Why, why is the situation as it is in our law firms and what can we do? And they shared their conclusions with one another and they shared their proposed solutions to equal this unbalance out with one another. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of the, the analysis was done by the, uh, at the junior level at law firms. And then this was shared with the management level of the law firms. And again, every law firm, every management level of every law firm listen to the analysis from the other law firms. Uh, so it was a very sort of a open exchange and very forward looking. And then this was sort of what were their conclusions um, that was summarized after the end of the project. So it took a year. Were there a lot of similarities between the law firms' conclusions? I think some similarities, but uh, some law firms have been uh, on top of this for some time. So they have, they're thinking sort of a little bit far, further ahead than others. Right. They're just starting. But again, I think every, every law firm recognizes that this needs to be addressed. It will not fix itself. 
Definitely. Um, and I think it's the same with, with the appointments of arbitrators. It will not fix itself. It, it's not sufficient to say, well, you have more women entering the field, you have more women entering international arbitration. That in itself will not automatically lead to them being appointed as arbitrators. Right. And I, th and I think it's about, and this is one of the, like a sub-explanation of the pledge, is that it's about visibility, not as much as you doing the act within your organization. It's about visibility. Um, how it looks to your client, how it looks to the outside world, how it looks to other firms, the type of actions you're taking. I know something that's come up, we had a um, diversity discussion at my firm recently, and one thing that someone brought up which I thought was interesting is that a client could address, in this subconscious bias, uh, address when anything about a decision needed to be made, the decision would go to the male partner or a male senior or even a male junior when there was a female senior or female partner in the room. And I think that visibility can come up there to say, I'm not the person to field that question, and then you redirect the question. And I think it's a very easy step that people can do to have more of a visibility that mm. we're assessing power the way it should be. And I think, I mean, this is not sort of a little bit parallel to sort of the discussion on appointment of arbitrators, but sort of tying into what you just said, I think one of the, I think, interesting observations from this project with this 10 law firms was that if you're looking at the time spent by associates on non-billable hours, mm -hmm. what, what is it that they're doing in the non-billable time? Uh, and for the men, it was a lot of networking. So they were brought to lunch or they were brought to speaking engagements. So they were, they were exposed and they could build their own network, which is important when you're being promoted to, to partner, right? Yeah. The women, they were doing a lot of internal training. They were doing a lot of knowledge management. They were doing a lot of inward looking things, which is also very important, building the structural capital as a firm, which is, you know, important for the firm, but they did not build their network. Yeah. And that is it's a big visible. difference. Uh, that when, you know, five, six years down the line, when you're being assessed for partnership, your network is part, is part of the uh, equation there. Uh, and the women were not given an opportunity or did not grab the opportunity to build it. And right. I think being aware of that can change how things work in the firms. But I have a related question that, that immediately came to my mind when I heard about the pledge, because outside of our tiny field of arbitration, the diversity discussion has sort of, sort of moved on from this binary gender, mm -hmm. men versus women, and we talk a lot about other aspects in, in this spirit of intersectionalism, so geographical uh, diversification and uh, ethnicity and so on. And admittedly, I guess that's something that's further down the line, and we should first start with a very obvious, uh, simple, uh, supposedly issue of, of uh, men and women or do you think this wider view of, of diversity is something that should also be addressed in this context? I think uh, they can be addressed in parallel. I don't think one has to wait for the other. Um, we had a, a pledged breakfast in Egypt in November last year. So that's sort of one of the things we do in our capacity as the members of the steering committee. We organize these events to, to discuss the, the content of the pledge. And of course, having this breakfast in, in, in Africa with participants from that region, that sort of added another layer of the diversity issue, which I think is very important. And I think the pledge raises awareness in general of being conscious when you make your appointment and not just by routine um, making the appointment and picking the names you are used to picking. So I think Probably, I don't have any scientific proof for this, but I'm pretty sure that awareness of diverse, in, on diversity issues um, 
have become larger, not only in terms of gender, but also other terms of yeah, diversity. As, yes, as a result of the pledge discussions, because your question or your sort of uh, um, question asking, is this wider? Of course, that has been raised elsewhere as well. And, and even been raised as sort of a critique to the pledge that is too narrow. But I think that's, um, then you misunderstand what the pledge is really all about and what it has capacity of doing. There's something to be said about having a more specific goal and something to achieve in mind. If it's too broad, I don't think it's going to be as easily achievable as something that's just specific and taking the lead. And then, as you said, things can happen in parallel or as a natural outgrowth of what's happening. And it, and it initiates a discussion, which perhaps was not there before. Uh, so I think that in itself um, is, is a good result. What about other areas than arbitrator appointments. I know, for example, of a colleague, um, a legal academic, not in the field of arbitration, but a male, well-known academic who uh, signed a similar pledge that he does not speak on panels on academic conferences if it's an all-male panel. So he, he told me that he has, on, on, on repeated occasions, actually responded to the organizers and said, uh, I, I won't do this. Here's a list of, of uh, as qualified or more qualified female colleagues. Please contact them instead or consider changing the setup of the panel. Is that something that you think is also in the spirit of the pledge, so to speak, even though it's not strictly arbitrator appointments? For us, as an institution, absolutely it is. Um, and we, I mean, we do a lot of events and, of course, um, that's something that we think of in terms of having diversity on the panels or in the on speaker list uh, and so forth. And I think, again, I, I think the awareness has been raised in general on those issues. I was at a conference in, in early May and the panels were not diverse. Yeah, the all male panel is still something <laughs> And that this is something <laughs> that was talked about at coffee breaks. And I'm sh oh. a few years ago that had not been the case, but now people were talking about it. Doesn't this give a sort of an old-fashioned yeah. uh, uh, look, or you know, did you notice that and so forth? So I think um, it's on people's um, back of pe people's minds. Uh, they think of it. Um, so, so again, I think um, even though it's not the language of the pledge, it has contributed to having that awareness right. and that discussion. Have it, the problem is with something like this is that everything happens, all the violations of this equal opportunity thing happens behind the scenes and it's very under the table and subconscious and so it's hard to kind of see these violations. But have you seen any flagrant, not violations, but just imbalances that have occurred either, for example, if you have a tribunal where there's a woman and she has not been heard as well or a, a panel where they did not want anything that was more flagrant of a violation? That, you could that is not something that we have put our attention to that or, yeah. or that we have been made aware of. Right. So I, I, I'm pretty sure if that was a flagrant thing, yeah. we would have heard about it. Um, uh, although on, the, on a sort of a similar note, though, we have had through the grapevine sometimes um, opinions being forwarded that what's this thing with appointing young arbitrators? Mm -hmm. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? <laughs> is that really a good thing? Because the older the better and you need the experience. And I'm not saying experience is not important, but, but you know, there are different cases and they require different things. But um, So what would, would be your standard response to, to the I question, think why do you appoint younger arbitrators? It makes me think of an experiment that I heard about a long, long time ago uh, on gender 
diversity in school. And the fact that boys and girls require different amounts of attention in the classroom. Uh, so there was this experiment uh, that was sort of uh, told to us where deliberately the boys and the girls, I think they were like in middle school, they were giving the exact amount of questions in the classroom. Every other question, boy, girl, boy, girl. And this went on for some time. Um, and after, after some time, the boys started complaining. Why do the girls get all the attention? Because they were so used to having 70% of the attention. And when they got 50%, they were like, why are you giving all the attention to the girls? And the girls were equally uh, uncomfortable because they thought they were put on the spot because they were asked all the questions. And I think, so it's a matter of perception. So I think um, if we are having more young arbitrators than before, it could be perceived as now all the appointments are to young arbitrators, right. which obviously is not the case. Um, but they, yes, they are more than they were 10 years ago. Probably, if you would count it, you would have more so-called younger arbitrators and, and hopefully more women. Well, we know there are more women. Um, and, you know, um, change could be um, dramatic for some, for some people. Yeah, it hurts when you lose your privileges. When you lose from the 70% right. to 50%, the boys were upset. And, you know, that yeah. could be a similar situation. And it's also funny how quick that problem... I mean, full disclosure, we have both worked in this environment in the SEC and seeing new appointments come in and then how quickly this appointee now becomes a member of the arbitra arbitrator community so quickly. It's kind of like breaking that first threshold is a very rough process, but then once you're in, you're in, mm. which is also not the best <laughs> environment to have it. So I had um, another, I, w I talked with a few colleagues before coming here, and one thing that um, a colleague of mine, a female colleague of mine brought up is that she is a single female in the workplace and a lot of the benefits that women get uh, not one of the only benefits women get is the under especially in Sweden is the understanding of having children having a family and there's a lot of mentorship and kind of a lot of things to overcome bias are directed towards a family oriented woman whereas a single woman um, is kind of getting the brunt of both sides where the brunt of the work and the brunt of the bias. Uh, do you have any insight or thought on that point? Well, first, I think uh, one should be careful and automatically when we talk about sort of mending the or balancing out the unbalance when it comes to diversity, for example, in a law firm, to immediately start talking about how to make it easier to have a raise a family and making a career because then you're cementing the fact that you expect the women right. to, to do that at the same time as they're working. And then, of course, today in Sweden, the argument being then, of course, well, young fathers, they want to have a part in their family too and so forth. Fine. I mean, that's, that's true and that's good. But still, if you, if you immediately go into a discussion of family when you talk about diversity, I think then you are cementing responsibilities, which I'm not so sure is really a good thing. I don't think so. Um, so uh, and so that could be that could be true that you know I, I wouldn't know I have not been in her situation yeah. so I wouldn't know um, but if that's her experience that's her experience because it's how it's come up in a lot of the conversations we've had within the firm it's like let's talk about diversity and gender bias and then it's like well women need to have mentor programs when they come back from maternity leave and, and all the single the single women without children are like, wait, what if that has nothing to do with me yeah, yeah. and without any plans maybe to right. even have 
family in the future. I right. think diversity issue is so much more complex than the family. I mean, there, like I say, unconscious bias. There are so many levels or layers of this that, and we all we are our, uh, victims of it. We all uh, practice it without really realizing that we do it, right. and we just have to be aware of it. Uh, so we have to work with many different um, platforms or forums or initiatives to address it and be aware of it. Um, one new thing that I that I also thought when I was reading about this pledge is the women and women, women supporting women, um, women helping women up and not putting them down or feeling competitive, um, just being conscious about the pledge as a woman as well. It doesn't have to be just men, I think is important uh, to think about. Can I throw you a curveball question and maybe ruin the good mood? <laughs> what about the SEC Secretariat? Right. How, how diverse is uh, the, the workplace that you are running? If you're talking about geography, we're very diverse. <laughs> in terms of gender, uh, but if in, in terms of gender, uh, not so much, no. Why do you think that is? Good question. Um, it's not conscious in terms of we are only higher women, if that's your question. Uh, um, and uh, we have, for the past few times that we have recruited, we have really, you know, thought to ourselves, it would be very good if you get a man in here, or maybe one, two men in here. <laughs> um, but so far, we have not been successful in doing that. Um, and it's uh, it's just really based on the on the applications that we receive. Because um, I think it's interesting. It's not, of course, uh, an SEC specific phenomenon because I think my impression is from the outside without any data to, to back it up is that many of the arbitral institutions the senior positions are generally staffed with women to a larger extent than maybe law firms you're probably right yeah, yeah. and I, I've been thinking maybe that it's because it's maybe more of a flexible and tolerant workspace than firms generally tend to be so that people who used to work in firms sort of find their way into the institutions eventually or maybe it's just something that's completely random I don't really know I think many workplaces can be very flexible if you, if you let them be, or, or if you are active enough in, in sort of designing your role that way. So I think law firms can be extremely flexible. Um, of course, you have clients, and, and you know you have to sort of adopt to that. But, but so, so do you, to be fair, though. But let, yeah, the things happen here too that we do not control. So I think. Um, one should be careful in terms of saying that this this workplace is is flexible and this one isn't, but there could be a lot of behavioral patterns that you sort of fall into that fool us. So I think um, it doesn't necessarily have to be that that um, that it's not flexible enough. I mean, um, many people in law firms would say that it's extremely flexible, right? So yeah. uh, given the consultancy work and the, the natural role of being a consultant. Um, I don't know why it is that more women um, populate the arbitral institutions in the senior management roles than, than the law firms. I don't have any good answer to that. I, I, I mean, I've noted it myself, but I, I, can't, I don't have any sort of a... Well, also, uh, to be fair, is that the people that have become senior, especially in the SEC, have been with the organization for a while. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily these direct hires that are coming in. It's you've had the ability to retain these people for quite a number of years, and so they've been able to move up. So maybe you're doing something right that someone else doesn't know how to retain this type of talent. Well, one thing, of course, is true. If you're looking at the arbitral institutions, the kind of work that we do here, there is really no other place you can do it. 
you can, but you can practice law in terms of it in a, in a general sense. You can do that in, a, in an in-house department in and a corporation. You could do it at the law firm. You can be in a bank or what have you. But the type of work that we do here, there are very few places in the world where you can do it, right. to be honest. Uh, so if that's something you like and if that's something that suits your personality and your talents, I mean, that's, that, there aren't that many places to choose from. And that could be a reason also why you sort of, um, you stay here and you do it here. Right. Uh, I just think for some, they see the law firm environment as hostile. <laughs> it's not the most welcoming. And so for some people, it's not the right fit for them. And it's also structurally constrained in many ways that institutions may not necessarily be because they are more, like, well, more, more modern, younger in their institutional tradition. Right. So we have a law firm tradition that's pretty significant and, and reaches uh, far back in time. Are there any trends in the academic PhD areas? None that I'm aware of, but I have to say that it's, as Annette said, we of course see pretty actively uh, that many of the best students, or a pretty big majority uh, of the best students are women, and it's been like that for a long time. So among the PhD applications, we also have a majority of women, at least the, for the faculty that I can speak for, the one that I work for. So I don't know, but if you look at the senior well-known uh, arbitration professors, I mean it's basically the same picture that you will see with senior arbitrators. In many cases they're even the exact same person because those communities overlap so much, so it's the same problem essentially that you have with arbitrators, I think. Right, right. Well, how do, they find, how do people sign on to the pledge? Oh, just visit the web website and you click, basically. It says take the pledge. Yeah, right? right. And then you sign on, as I said, either as an individual in your own capacity or you can, as long as you have authority from your firm to do so, you can sign on on behalf of the firm. Do, or you, whatever do you get a, a button or a, a little a an poster? An yeah, I exactly. <laughs> clip. And there was some really nice gadgets at the <laughs> launch event in London a year ago. So, you know... Um, so somewhere out there, there's merchandise to be had. Well, I about merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> this little thing you can hang on your door, you know, that you clean up my room. It says, right. uh, I took the pledge or, you know, there are things like oh, that. Oh, yeah, I cleaned yeah. up arbitration, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Still, we haven't found a jingle for the happy fun time, right? No. No. Barney is still creating it. <laughs> Do you know Barney? No. Oh, he's a cartoon purple dinosaur. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know of him. I don't know him personally. But that's my earliest association with happy fun time. But I, I was actually too old. <laughs> I think I was like <laughs> seven or eight. And it was like an under six program. Uh, okay, well, well, we'll look into finding a jingle. If you do have one, anonymous listener out there, please send us one. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, but today's happy fun time topic is something that I, as I flagged initially, that I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, but we shouldn't let that stop us, because then we would have no podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it's what, I, what I've called the born arbitration aspects. And it's essentially, I, I started thinking about this uh, in the last episode when we talked about the UCOS challenge. Do you remember the challenge against... Or, the secretary. Yeah, exactly, the secretary, the forensic 
linguistics that Russia employed in order to argue that the tribunal secretary had written a significant, too significant portion of the award and not as alleged or as assumed by the other side that the tribunal and maybe even the chairman wrote the, most of the award. So Russia managed to use forensic linguists to show that the secretary had in fact with I think 80 something percent certainty written the relevant parts of the award that they were discussing, which is interesting. And then last week I met a fellow doctoral candidate at Cambridge in the UK. And he claimed, and I might be paraphrasing to the extent that I'm distorting what he was saying, but I, I understood that he was saying that given very little amount of data, it's possible to determine which arbitrator wrote which part of the award. So wow. basically, if you, with not that sophisticated software, if you uh, feed the software to dissenting opinions of Jan Paulson, you should be able to determine if Jan Paulson has written award X after uh, that. Wow. And that's like, people are doing research on this and it's not, you know, super qualified hackers. It's, it's easily available. Right. And he didn't know, but it seems like he was assuming that law firms are sort of starting to experiment with using those types of services. To then figure out if they can challenge the award. Yeah. And also in, I would imagine in arbitrator appointments, because you don't always know, you assume that the chairperson wrote the award, but there are so many awards out there, which are clearly a compromise between three, three arbitrators. Yeah. And it might be relevant for you to say, okay, so who, who do we think was holding the pen on this specific point that we are looking for, this jurisdictional issue or this uh, quantum issue? And then if all you need is a few other publicly available awards that you know for a fact that he or she wrote, you could use that in order to determine what he or she thought in a case that you're not supposed to be. But do we have, I mean, are there any courts, I mean, in the Swedish courts, are, are judges writing these decisions, or are they clerks? Judges, yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it, it depends a little bit, but it has to be, formally it's disclosed. In the Swedish courts, it says so, you have like the five judges on the bench, and then it says within parentheses who wrote it, so like who was primarily responsible for writing it. But that doesn't mean, once again, that that person wrote the whole thing. So even in that context, it might be useful to use data analysis. Interesting. So it's before the arbitrator appointment and also after to see whether who was Yeah, in the Yugo scenario. Right. Basically. And you, I think there are so many arbitrator intelligence initiatives going on that we need to level the playing field. So not just the 10 biggest law firms in the world have access to all the intelligence on potential arbitrators, but also less sophisticated and less repeat players are able to nominate an arbitrator that will be suitable to them. Because you know there's a, a symmetry in the in the information available, I think, so this type of software could sort of level up playing field or assist in doing so. That's really interesting. I think it's so cool, and also because I'm less sophisticated myself, so I just assumed that this was you know 15 years in the future and not right. something that a, a guy at Cambridge could do tomorrow if you asked him. Yeah, I mean, but then it, then there's going to be a kind of a public shaming blacklist movement that's going to happen unfortunately you mean as a counter if you're found out that you weren't writing your awards yeah but isn't that a good thing yeah no but I, it, this will just inevitably follow we're going to have like a public stoning of people who don't uh, 
write their words. Yeah, but the people who don't write their words, maybe should they shouldn't not. be stoned, but maybe they should not be, be you know, appointed repeatedly in the future. Yeah, because if you're, I mean, the way arbitrator appointments happen now, of course, there's a bit of a institutional memory within your law firm um, about, oh, we've worked with this person or we've worked against them or they were an arbitrator on another case. And that's how you choose who your arbitrator or the one that you're going to want to nominate to make it a bit more of a scientific evaluation of what does this person contribute to an arbitral tribunal as well as an award, I think is actually uh, very beneficial. Yeah, I think so too. So that's a good thing. But it, that's not as born arbitration as the next thing, Okay. which stems from another thing that I was thinking about. I, I attended a conference in Switzerland a few years back, and there was a guy there from New York who works primarily it seemed and once again i'm paraphrasing so much that it's <laughs> my words only uh, he has his own firm working on all these born arbitration matters that are connected to large-scale arbitrations without necessarily working as counsel so asset tracing and helping in any kind of enforcement issue and re opposition research and so on and so forth so many cool things that I would like my students to do more so I could get some more war stories because right. that sounded like a Jason Bourne movie. So this is asset tracing for eventual enforcement. Exactly. And he mentioned, well, for example, a very banal thing. Did you know that it's legal in almost every jurisdiction in the world to go through garbage? Is it? Yeah. I don't know. He claims so. I haven't uh, well, actually... He's from New York, so he would know. Yeah, exactly. I think he was even from another jurisdiction, but he worked in New York, and he's working with this. So he said, I think it was mainly for the laughs, but he seemed serious, that they, on a pretty regular basis, have people going through trash cans outside of embassies, outside of offices or state-owned enterprises, because you'd be amazed, he claimed, by you know how, how bad they could be sometimes and shredding important documents and so on. So he said that they've managed to secure eventual enforcement based on bank account information that they've managed to find in trash cans outside of embassies. Wow. 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 That's effed up. <laughs> That's who, who is going through people's trash? An intern, probably. Yeah. yeah. I who would guess. It's great because they have cool gloves and... That's, that's insane. And so that's, but that, I mean, that's the more low-key aspect of it. Then they have so many ex-military people doing the more hardcore stuff, like following, especially, this was an investment treaty arbitration conference, so there were some uh, subsequent discussions, I think, about what happens if, for example, if, if the state is trying to collect on a cost award, is it different if, if what you're trying to enforce is against the investor as opposed to against the state. But it, it's more, it's more born like when it's the state that is the one you're right. chasing, basically. Because they have, they have stuff all over the world. Yeah, exactly. And they have so many resources and it's also such a slow moving machine. Right. So what he was saying was basically that uh, the strategy generally is to go through court action because that's the best way, despite what people like me would have thought it's it's very good to, to start with all these going through trash cans and other ways of trying to see where is money being spent by the state for example looking at the law firms that they're using or the accountants that they're using all these professionals that most states have on retainer uh, if you start to locate those you can start to locate where are the bank accounts like so where do they spend this money and once you do that you start with court actions because then it becomes uncomfortable for the state 
a court action to begin enforcement. Yeah. Okay. And what you're looking for really, or what he is, the strategy that he tends to, to drop for his clients is that what you're looking for is to get the state to the table. So you're not ultimately or primarily looking to have the award enforced because that's too complicated. You're looking to make it so uncomfortable for the state in various ways so that they start... Voluntarily enforcing. Yeah, exactly. Or it's, some sort of settlement. It's like a we're on to you technique. Exactly. So you need to show muscle and then you need to show that you've, been, you know, you, you've managed to go through the trash cans in four different embassies. So you're really looking <laughs> very, very hard and you will find it eventually. So he's a lawyer as well, this company. Yeah. So they do not only the forensic side of it, but they also do... The actual enforcement assistant, yeah. Are there a lot of other companies like him? Yeah. I actually do have an ex-student who works for a company like this in Amsterdam. And I have a friend of mine who works in London for a similar company, and I tried to pump him on war stories, but he might be too junior to be comfortable. <laughs> Disclosing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I mean, I know that there are asset tracing companies, of course, because that's an inevitable consequence of trying to enforce, that you're going to have to try and figure out where the bodies are hidden. But I did not know that this was a full service operation that they could, you know, minority report, hack into your whatever. <laughs> yeah, which I think sounds so interesting. I guess it's just a spy movie version of me. But it, that's an interesting career option for people who are interested in international arbitration or international law, but maybe necessarily aren't, aren't that interested in practicing law. Right. It is. I mean, now I'm just going through because... I would say that that would be more of a reason to get a third-party funder because enforcement's where the money is. Who cares if you win? It's, you know, now I'm going to pay you only 200% of whatever I recover instead of 300% of whatever I win um, because you're, then you could pay this company to find the money. Yeah, and they, of course, like any other like high-skilled professional service, they've done this before and you probably get what you pay for. Do you know if there's any repercussions for a state that has in some shape or form represented that they don't have money or that they are working on it and then you f actually end up finding out that they are liquid in a certain jurisdiction where they previously said they weren't? Uh, have you heard of anything? No. Well, yeah, I have, but not in the direct legal sense that I think you're asking yeah. but of course it has like market repercussions and right. that's also something that this guy who works with this mentioned that you want to make it part of making it uncomfortable for the state is to make sure that the people that the state is dealing with including other states are aware of the shady behavior so that could afford you know it could affect the bond rating or the commercial relationships that the state has with other actors to the extent that it starts to comply voluntarily right but I don't think there are any like legal ramifications. So apart from the fact, of course, that if you do find liquid assets somewhere, you can hopefully execute on them. Interesting. It really is. Would you, but would you rather be a third party funder or an asset tracer? I think asset tracer. That I mean, that just that sounds very interesting. I don't have any of the skills required for that job, <laughs> but I would love to do that. It does sound interesting, and I bet because I, you know. These states have their money in the weird... It's almost like Harry Potter and the Horcruxes. I don't know if you read it, but it's, you know, he's like hidden his soul in different objects around the world. And it seems that's like what a state does. Yeah, and also you have all these immunity concerns, various kinds of immunity to take into account as well. So pr primarily you're supposed to be looking for commercially run assets that the state right. has abroad. Right. 
and then there's a big gray zone between those and the diplomatic assets that the state has abroad. Okay, but so, so what you're saying is that you do have the skills to be a third-party funder. Yeah, I mean, to analyze the merits of a case, I could do that part of it, for sure. I guess those are the people that they employ, at least partly. As you said, they have a lot of numbers people, presumably, but also people who've been in the trenches and have experience of uh, running yeah. arbitrations. I mean, the interesting thing about it, and this was something that I didn't raise in the previous section, but is that when the third-party funder comes on, um, and even when do you disclose that you're getting a third-party funding? I don't know how that works, but I know that the trend is to encourage them to join and disclose as early as possible, of course. But if we're talking about my skills on how to assess the merits of a case, when you read a statement of claim or even, you know, go even further, a request of arbitration, the, your ability to kind of grasp the issues and, you know, understand the level of evidence that they have to back up these issues, um, I think the ability would be greatly hindered um, to be able to assess the merits of the claim. Yeah. Um, would you be able to lever yourself if that's what you're working on full time? Would I be able to what myself? Live with yourself. <laughs> I mean, you have you do have the access to justice aspect of it. To I mean, I mean you being such a, a good person with ambitions to improve the world and whatnot. I've been in a case and I've seen the need of more funding, um, where we've had to stop work for a month or two in order to get invoices paid in order to keep moving forward where I would have very much liked to keep working on the case. The problem is within that comment I just made is my extreme bias of being on the side of advocate where I want to communicate my issues and my points and but then maybe you could encourage settlement if there was, wasn't third party funding. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I could live with myself. <clears throat> but you're a business lawyer as it is now so and apparently you already live with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I see where you're headed at, Joel. <clears throat> I think that is another thing we need to talk about, actually, is ethical rules. Yes, yeah. it concerns, because my ethical obligations are very different than other people's ethical obligations. That's right. Should we have to turn this into a daily podcast? Yeah. If there's a third-party funder. <laughs> That's a good note to close on. 